Well, happy Friday, folks. We're back again for now our second weekly market recap with Lance Roberts. Hey, Lance, how are you? Hey, how are you? It's number two. I like that number two. <laughs> yeah. No, but thank you. We got great feedback from our inaugural pilot episode last week. And, uh, you know, we asked the audience, do you want to see this happening uh, on a regular basis going forward? And the response was loud and very positive. So, folks, be careful what you ask for. Uh, because uh, we're doing it now. I don't, now you're stuck with me. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. But folks really do appreciate this more sort of, you know, tactical uh, boots on the ground uh, compliment to all the macro stuff that we do, Lance. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's dive right in real quick, though. Um, I do want to let folks know that we are going to be talking with you on the macro side of things at our upcoming conference next weekend. Um, it's been a crazy week for me. Uh, getting everything ready for the conference, um, pre-recording a lot of the presentations with um, some of the experts uh, who won't be there live. And I'll tell you, those uh, presentations are just off the hook. Amazing. So um, awesome. folks, if you haven't signed up for that yet, I'll give you the details at the end of this video. Um, and again, Lance, you're going to be there, one of the featured speakers, talking more on the macro side of the, the markets. Um, but then also you'll be joining us for some live Q&A. So folks will be able to ask you their hottest burning questions, which I'm sure folks are excited to hear. So Lance, let's dive right in here. Theme of the week. What are you, what are you picking as the theme of the week for what just happened? There's only one theme this week, and that's inflation. I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, we started the week on inflation. I think we ended last week on inflation. And unfortunately, it's inflating. Uh, that's the whole thing right here. So, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I just a little bit, but look, really and truly, uh, that is pretty much the driver here. Whether, you know, uh, Jerome Powell, Bostic, uh, Messer, several Fed officials have come out this week and said, look, we're going to be hiking rates faster. We're going to be tapering the balance sheet quicker. Now, I want to be really clear about this. So that's what they're saying, right? So it's it's kind of like, uh, you know, the old saying, you know, read, you know, watch my lips because they're saying one thing, but if you actually take a look at their Fed balance sheet and, you know, look at what's been happening on a weekly basis, they're still doing a lot of QE every week. Um, and so we're still seeing a lot of monetary support for the, for the markets. They haven't raised interest rates yet. So, uh, you know, while they're talking this one hand saying, oh, we're going to be very aggressive about rate hikes here. Um, we're going to be tapering off the balance sheet very quickly. They certainly haven't started that just yet. So, you know, maybe, and, and there's kind of this uh, two you know, way to look at this is maybe they're hoping to try to talk the markets down a little bit here, give them a little bit of breathing room. So when they start to hike rates and, and taper policy, that it's not such a big shock to the markets. We'll see if that if it works out as, as planned. But the Fed's in a really, really tight box. I mean, you know, on one hand, they've got this inflationary pressure that is really impacting the average consumer. There was a bank rate uh, survey out uh, earlier this week or last week, I can't remember. But 39% of Americans can't come up with $100 to meet an emergency. $100, right? <laughs> so you can only imagine, you know, how inflation at the grocery store, at the, you know, the gas pump, et cetera, is really affecting them. You know, we talked about uh, on our last uh, visit about if we strip out healthcare and, and mortgage payments, which are for most individuals, those are fixed. And those don't change from week to week, month to month based on inflation. And, and look at, you know, food and gas and energy and those things. It's 11% for most people. Um, yeah, it's and, double digits. Yeah. And, and, and that's really important here. So 
here's my point about Fed policy. And I, and I think that there's two things that the markets are overlooking. I think there's two things that Jerome Powell is overlooking. And I guarantee you it's two things that Jamie Dimon is overlooking in his comments uh, on Friday about bank earnings. The economy is growing. Yes, it is. And it's growing because we threw $5 trillion into it over the last couple of years. And you had a, a shutdown in, in supply. So now we've got this demand supply imbalance that's creating this illusion of really strong economic growth. Well, Jamie Dimon is saying Fed's going to hike rates seven times this year, whatever it is. Um, a lot of Wall Street analysts are saying we've got this super strong economy this year. Well, we're now coming off. All that liquidity is now over. December the 15th was the last of the child tax credits. So all that liquidity is coming out of the market. Supply is coming back online. If we take a look at what's happening, some of the ISM supply manufacturing indexes digging down behind there, um, you're seeing delivery times coming down. You're starting to see supplies and inventories coming up. So you're seeing this demand and, and supply. They're going to start heading off into a balance here. And that's going to lead to weaker economic growth later this year. So now you've got the Fed on one hand tightening policy and removing monetary accommodation in order to battle this 7% inflation we've got going on. At the same time, everything that's causing the inflation will start to reverse here to a degree. Uh, and this is the perfect setup for, for a policy mistake, which is our biggest concern financially for portfolios this year, is they move too quick, too fast, and it causes a decoupling in the markets. All right. Well, just having talked this week with both Lacey Hunt and Jim Rickards, uh, they agree with you. They think that the theme for the year is disinflation and maybe even back to deflation. Um, and uh, by the way, uh, that's think, uh, by the way, that's also why we've been buying bonds all week. OK, well, let's get to that in just a moment. <laughs> um, but uh, but but, you know, they, they, they certainly share your concerns about, you know, the Fed reacting um, too much, too soon, too fast, mm -hmm. as Jim Rickards likes to say. Um, he says in his career, the easiest thing he does is um, forecasting Fed policy because he says you basically just lean back and think of the absolutely worst thing they could do, and that's what they're going to do. Yeah. Um, but I mentioned that because you put up a chart recently um, that, sort of paraphrasing it, said since 1960, uh, whenever you had periods where valuations were high, like over 20 times earnings, um, when the Fed would raise rates into that type of environment, um, this is what we got. Um, we got three bear markets, two recessions, and one debt crisis. So it sort of shows that if you look at history, yeah, the Fed has actually kind of you know made these policy mistakes before. So um, uh, it sounds like your your wariness that um, you know something could break here is is you know elevated. Well, it, it is. And look, there's always the potential chance that we, this is the one time that we could get the partridge in the pear tree type thing. But, you know, the reality is, is that history doesn't really work out that way. And, you know, and again, just you have to think about, you know, Fed policy and what, what is the goal of Fed policy? And, and I was actually I was doing an interview earlier today and was talking about the same thing. You know, the hubris of the Federal Reserve is really mind boggling if you think about it, that through monetary policy, these individuals can control the outcome of economic growth, employment, and inflation. 
And somehow magically, you know, over the last 20 years, they could never get themselves to 2% to 2% inflation, which is was their target. They couldn't get above 2% economic growth on, a, on an average annualized basis. But their monetary policy was working fantastic in creating wealth inequality between the top 10% of income earners and everybody else in the economy. And now, brilliantly, after we make this decision to create an artificial recession, and I want to be really clear about this. In 2019, I'm going to get back to my point, but a little bit of history here is important. In 2019, we had an inverted yield curve. The Fed had hiked rates in 2018. And, and remember, in, in October of 2018, the Fed says, oh, we're nowhere near the neutral rate. The, the market crashes 20% to the end of 2018. And magically, the Fed comes out and says, oh, we're actually a lot closer to the neutral rate than we thought. So we're going to stop you know, raising rates here. Um, in 2019, they drop rates back to zero. They start to bail out banks and hedge funds. Remember in 2019, in September, they started QE4 then, but nobody was talking about it. But that's where they were bailing out these hedge funds at the repo window. In the repo market, yeah. Exactly. Did over a trillion dollars worth of bailouts of QE4. And then the, invert, the, the yield curve was inverted at this point, telling you an economic problem was coming. And despite how you get to the economic recession, it's always a catalyst, right? It, it, you're always looking, you know, the environment is ripe for a recession when you have certain ingredients in the economy. And we had all the ingredients for a recession. What we needed was a catalyst. And 2007, it was the bankruptcy of Lehman. Um, in 2020, it was shutting down the economy. But you know, that was all there, but we shut down the economy, we create this artificial recession, and then we come in and dump all this liquidity. It's like, oh, we messed up. Let's go throw all this liquidity into the markets. So we create this recovery. And now they finally get inflation because the shutdown of the economy caused this break between supply and demand. You had swamp of demand, no supply, you get surprised, you get price inflation. Now they simply think that, oh, yeah, we're going to raise rates. We'll magically bring interest rates, uh, inflation down to 2% and stop it right there. I mean, you know, this, the, the, the absolute hubris of these guys is amazing that they think that they can control inflation. I absolutely agree with Lacey Hunt. And to my point uh, I said a second ago, we've been adding bonds to our portfolio all week because yields are very overbought. Bond prices are very oversold here. And historically, whenever the Fed starts hiking rates and reducing their balance sheets, that is a risk off environment for stocks, which means it's risk on for two asset classes, bonds and gold. So, you know, we're buying bonds here to hedge our, our long equity positions. We're going to be more aggressively adding bonds as we move later into the year. I absolutely agree with Lacey Hunt. I think deflation is the real story for this year. And that's going to be the one thing that really screws the pooch for the Fed because they are not banking on sub 2% inflation, which they could literally get that by the end of this year if we wind up in a recession this year because they're too aggressive on monetary policy. Um, the thing to watch is to watch the yield curve. If the yield curve inverts, that's all you need to know that they've gone too far. All right. And can you define for a moment what an inverted yield curve is? I'm not sure every viewer knows that. And explain why it's important, too. That's my secret recipe. Can't tell, can't share that with anybody. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, an inverted yield, look, there's, there's a lot of debate about which yield curve um, that you should use. And the, there's the, you know, for, if we look at treasury bonds, and what we're talking about specifically here for yield curves is we're talking about government-issued bonds. 
Um, you can have inverted yield curves with corporate bonds and you know Fannie Mae's, Ginnie Mae's, mortgage bonds, et cetera. But when we talk about inverted yield curves relative to the economy, we're talking about the different maturities of, or I should say actually the different durations of government issued bonds. So we're talking one year, two year, three year, three month uh, T-bills, 10 year treasury bonds, 30 year bonds. So if you talk to Jeff Gunlack, he'll tell you that he likes the, you know, the three, the three month, five year yield curve. Um, if you talk to somebody else, they'll tell you that they like a different version. Um, the 10 year treasury bond versus the yield on the 10 year treasury bond versus the yield on the two year treasury bond is the most commonly used measure of an inverted yield curve. So all that means is, is that at some point, the yield on the 10-year treasury. So I haven't looked today, but the 10-year treasury is probably yielding right now about 1.7%-ish, somewhere around there. Um, if the yield on the 10-year treasury falls to say 1.4% and the yield on the two-year treasury is 1.5%, well, you've got an inversion. The short end of the curve has a higher yield than the longer end of the curve. Now, what does that tell you? And that's the important thing, right, to understand. The, the yield curve itself is just because it's inverted doesn't necessarily mean that it's a problem. It's just telling you that there is a dislocation in the demand for risk and money in the markets. People lending money for a very short-term environment are demanding more in terms of risk payment. That's the interest rate, right? I'm, I'm loaning you money. You're paying me an interest rate. My interest rate should be relative to the risk I'm taking of getting repaid. And people are demanding a higher rate on the short end than they are on the long end of the curve. It tells you there's an economic problem somewhere in the economy. Now, importantly, where the media gets this wrong continually is they go, oh, the yield curve's inverted. That means a bear market's coming. No, just because it inverts does not mean a yield, that you're about to have a bear market. When you have the bear market, and, and again, an inverted yield curve has a 100% success rate of predicting bear markets, but it's not when it inverts, it's when it uninverts that's critically important. When it reverses, so now you've gone inverted, the two year is yielding higher than the 10 year, and all of a sudden it rockets in the other direction. That's your recession setting in, that's your economic crisis. That's where all of a sudden money just moved into long duration bonds for safety. And they're rapidly at that point coming out of risk in equities. So that's the point you'll be looking for. All right, great. Um, very, Thank you for putting that explanation out there. I think for a lot of people, they maybe finally get it now when people right. talk about the inverted yield curve. Um, all right, uh, just because we were on the subject of, of uh, deflation, um, and before you get to deflation, you have to go through disinflation, right. which um, think about like uh, throwing a ball up in the air. When you throw it with a lot of force, think of that as sort of, in you know, that's, that's, that's high upward growth. So that's right. inflation. As it begins to approach its apex, it's growing more slowly. So it's still growing, but the rate of growth is slowing down. That's disinflation. You then hit your apex, and then as you start coming down the other side, that's that's deflation. That's an accelerating decline in, in right. you know, basically negative growth. And you're going to see a lot of that this year. Earnings estimates for stocks are running at $210 to $220 a share for the end of 2021, depending on who you, who you look at. I would, I would highly suspect that by the time we get to the fourth quarter of 2020, we're going to be talking about earnings maybe in the 190 to 200 range. Okay. Wow. All right. Great. Well, that's well, inflation. Okay. That's inflation, by the way. 
Right, right, right. Um, all right, well, look, um, in, in kind of beginning to wrap up here a little bit, I do want to talk about just the activity of the week. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of gave that parabola example um, of, of inflation to deflation. But if you look at a, a, a price chart of the S&P for the week, kind of followed the same trajectory, <laughs> kind of a bit of a round trip week, right? So we yeah. had a down week last week. This week looked like we were, you know, bouncing back into, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, renewed rally, but then things fizzled and, and pretty much ended the week where it started. So what are the tea leaves telling you? What, what, what are you taking away from what happened this week? Well, I can't really tell you what, here. so here's the problem that we're stuck in right now from a portfolio management standpoint. So um, as we talked about last week, we had some long trading positions that we had added for the Santa Claus rally. Um, and we were holding those into the beginning of the year. We sold those early uh, early last week um, before the decline. And so we had reduced our equity exposure going into this week already. Um, and we were looking for that bounce to potentially reduce equity exposure a bit more here. But again, we're, we're kind of moving slowly here because again, you know, there's this current rotation that we're watching to go from, gro from, from growth into value. So we're seeing a lot of people jump on that bandwagon you know, buy, you know, everybody, even the retail meme traders, the, the ones that were chasing all the art, you know, transactions last year, they're all now buying value. Um, so we're seeing that rotation, but that trade is now extremely overbought here short term. So I'd be careful trying to chase value here at the moment. We're likely going to see more of a rotation and we've got earnings coming up. So again, we've got earnings season and last quarter, you know, economic growth was still good. So you know, I suspect that earnings reports will still be pretty decent. We still had a lot of liquidity in the system last quarter. So, you know, we could see some better than expected uh, earnings reports for this quarter. That'll help kind of buoy the market a bit. But once we kind of get through this, you know, that's where a lot of the weakness is going to start to show up as we get further into the year. So, you know, from an investment management standpoint, I would definitely use rallies here to start thinking about lightening up on high beta. Um, really overvalued stocks. We have more stocks than ever before in history trading it at 30 times price to sales. That should not happen ever. And we do. Um, and, you know, so, you know, those are the stocks you want to look at, you know, that, and, and, you know, I pick on, I've been picking on ARC a little bit lately and, and not that I have anything against ARC. It's just, it's just a great proxy for, you know, the kind of the meme retail chase that we saw last year, you know, all that excess liquidity, you know, the ARC ETFs are, are, you know, itself is, you know, really just kind of a proxy for that. And again, I'm not picking on Kathy Wood or her portfolio style or anything else. You know, I respect her as a portfolio manager. It's just those stocks are in a particular basket of highly overvalued companies that will not survive well in a high inflationary environment because it will impact their earnings. And one of the things that we have to also remember is that a lot of the market is being driven by the top 10 stocks of the S&P. Those are the companies that can afford to go back. Apple, as a good example, has bought back half a trillion dollars worth of their shares. Yes. That's, that, supports their, that supports their earnings per share. Uh, their, their, their earnings growth is about 11% a year. The stock has doubled in value from 1 trillion to 3 trillion over the last four years, so, or tripled in value. Um, and, and, and so that's all driven by all those share buybacks. That's what's been supporting that price. Well, small and mid-cap companies, you know, your Snowflakes, your Palantirs, your Asanas, you know, these type of companies, 
they don't have that kind of capital to go out and buy back, you know, half a million, you know, $100 billion worth of shares, $200 billion worth of shares, whatever, to support their EPS. So they are really going to be subject. Their earnings are going to be very subject to an environment where there's less liquidity and high inflation. So be careful in that area. This may be the time, and I'm not saying go sell everything in your portfolio and go jump over into value stocks, but you may want to start thinking about those boring old companies that just produce steady earnings growth, pay a good dividend. It'll help you kind of weather whatever's kind of coming down the pipeline here. But you've got to be careful just because I say buy an old stodgy company that it's not Coca-Cola, it's not Disney. Those stocks are way overvalued for their for where we are in this current environment. So you're going to have to do a little bit of homework here, but focus on buying some value, focus on buying stability of growth, focus on buying dividends, and that'll help give you a little bit of shelter if we do get into a stormy environment this year. All right, that's great. I was I like to my aspiration is to end these sessions on sort of a practical direction for you know something viewers can take away and, yeah. and apply over the week. And you had just put out a, a video the other day about rebalancing um, when and into what. I think you just sort of answered that question. There. <laughs> well, and, and that's the idea. Look, and 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 you know, unfortunately, since we're doing this every week, you know, there's going to be times where it's going to kind of be the same message for a while. So be prepared for that. There was, you know, hey, last week we talked about rotating into value and still that's still the trade that hasn't changed. Um, you know, there will be a point that we'll say, hey, you know, it's time to go back and buy more aggressive growth or whatever it is. It's just we're not in that environment right now. So this may be the same message for a little while. Um, and don't discount bonds. I know bonds are boring. They don't yield much. But, you know, we're not buying bonds for yield. We're buying bonds for capital appreciation. And I wrote last year that I think 2022 could be a year that bonds outperform stocks. And I know that's hard for a lot of people to believe, but it won't be the first time that's happened. All right. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to raise this question, which we can really answer in depth next time. But yep. um, I think some viewers might be saying, wait a minute, Lance, uh, Fed's talking, it's going to do four rate hikes this year. Mm -hmm. So if interest rates are going up, bond prices would be going down. So what's there to like about bonds in that type of environment? <laughs> well, see, that's what you would think. Right. You would think that if the Fed's hiking rates on the short end, that means that all interest rates are going up. Um, that's not really the case. And take a look at 2018. Let's just go back to 2018 as a, as a, as a recent example. Go take a look at bond yields, 10-year treasury. Take a look at TLT as an example, as an ETF in 2018. Yields dropped markedly while the Fed was hiking rates and, and tapering their balance sheet. Why? Why would that occur? Well, that was because it's risk off. Let's remember one thing here very quickly. The bond market is four times the size of the stock market any day of the week. And when there is somebody that has a lot of capital at risk and they want safety, where do they go? They go into treasury bonds. Where does foreign capital go to when they want safety? If I am, if I, right, you know, am I, if I'm in Russia or China or, you know, is, you know, India or somewhere else, and, I, and I've got a lot of capital, am I going to put it into the Indian bonds or Russian bonds or Chinese bonds? No, I'm going to put them into the U.S. stock market. When I convert them into U.S. dollars, they go into treasury bonds. So I'm looking for safety and stability of capital. And right now, too, as, as relative to the rest of the world, our 10-year treasury rate is higher than a lot of government bond, government issue bonds in other parts of the world as well. So those attract capital. So in the times of distress, when there is a need for safety, and this is this is all this is about, I'm, I'm going to tell you something here too, just for all investors here in one second. But when there's a need for safety, 
it's the U.S. Treasury bond. So again, you look at any point in history, and I've got a chart on this. I'll send you Adam for, for this. But any time in history where you start seeing the Fed hike rates, ten-year Treasury rates, well, they'll initially move up because of the expectation you just brought up. But then they fall as the impact to the economy and the markets becomes real. That risk off rotation pulls capital out of stocks into bonds. Now, here, let me tell you one thing. This is an important thing for all investors. You need to understand this. In any investment, and it doesn't matter what investments you buy, you can only have one, two, two of three items. You can have safety of your capital. You can have return on your capital. Okay. And you can have liquidity of your capital. Now, you can have two of three, but you can't ever have all three. Stocks will give you return and liquidity, but they won't give you safety. Bonds will give you safety and, and return, but they won't give you any liquidity, right? You got to sell your bonds. So no matter what you buy, real estate, doesn't matter what it is, you can only have two or three. So when you look at how you invest your portfolio, you need to determine what are those two of three items that I want? Well, if you've got a 100% stock portfolio, that's awesome. You've got safety, you've got liquidity and return, but you've got no safety of capital. So adding bonds to your portfolio will lower the overall volatility of your portfolio and provide that safety of capital. You'll still have liquidity from your stocks. You'll still have return from your stocks, but you'll now have safety of capital as well. And when you start building a portfolio allocation to weather some type of market event that may be coming down the pipeline, and look, I'm not telling you the market's going to crash. I'm not saying we're about to be in a big bear market. I'm not saying any of that. I'm, pre I'm, I'm preparing for those consequences because that's what happens typically when the Fed becomes very active. And I think you need to be aware of that risk, but don't go hide all in cash right now because <laughs> you know that's not necessarily a good thing either. Um, but you need to start thinking about your allocation in terms of those three items and start building your allocation to deliver the rate of return, the liquidity and the safety that you want in your portfolio. Excellent. Well, thanks, Lance. We're, we're going to wrap it up here, but you just underscored exactly why I wanted to start this uh, new series, which is you know giving people an inside view inside the brain of a highly experienced uh, portfolio manager um, with just the decisions they need to make and you know the the long term scope of history to know that hey something might actually the, the right tactic might actually look to the uh, you know less experienced as kind of contrary to what you would you would think. We just did that example with, with potentially yeah. rising interest rates. But that's where the experience of, an, of a seasoned portfolio manager really comes into play. So anyways, thank you for continuing to give us that uh, transparent look inside your brain. Um, I was saying, uh, or, or, or I'll actually bring an experienced portfolio manager next time. I mean, you yeah, yeah, tell me that. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, all right, folks. Well, like I said, um, if you want to see Lance uh, opine on the macro side of things, um, if you're watching this video, you're probably watching it on Saturday, uh, June 15th. Um, that means uh, January 15th. That means you've got one week left uh, to sign up for uh, Wealthion's upcoming conference. Uh, in addition to Lance, and like I said, he's uh, speaking, but also taking live Q&A. We'll have Lacey Hunt. We'll have Jim Rickards. We'll have Luke Groman. We'll have Danielle DiMartino Booth. We'll have uh, Brent Johnson. Uh, we'll have Jim Grant. Uh, we'll have uh, Stephen McBride, Ivy Zellman. Uh, we'll have Jeff Clark. Um, a few folks I haven't forgot to mention there, but it is literally a murderer's row of fantastic financial experts to opine on 
what they think investors should be doing given this uncertain landscape that we're looking at ahead here in 2022. To find more out about that, as well as to register, just go to wealthion.com slash Jan2022. Lance, so great to see you again and look forward to seeing you next week. You got it. Thank you.